Christine. And I'm Alan. And we're two pastors with PhDs needing an outlet for all that knowledge rolling around in our heads. So we put our heads together and came up with this podcast. Each week we will discuss a scripture passage from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm going to interview Alan about his biblical knowledge. And I'm going to interview Christy about her amazing knowledge of the Reformation. And then we're going to talk together about the implications for today. Our hope is that between the two of us, we'll come up with some information that will help you with your sermon planning each week. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being with us today. Today's lectionary passage is Matthew 23. 1 through 12, I had to look, make sure I'm on the right page, uh, Matthew 23, 1 through 12. And as I was reading through this lectionary passage, it occurred to me that it's really taken out of a, a larger context of things. And so I think we need to start by having Alan put this into the broader context. Well, it's true. Um, one, of the, one of the blessings of the lectionary, you know, is it gives us kind of an overview of everything. <clears throat> and I guess one of the uh, downsides is that sometimes it skips some things that, that maybe are important. Uh, as I've as I mentioned before, this whole section of Matthew's gospel is is really sort of leading up to this this chapter. Um, uh, um, as I mentioned before, uh, I think Matthew, the community, the Christian Jewish Christian community that Matthew is addressing uh, his gospel to, um, was very much in conflict with the synagogue and with the Jewish leaders, and um, you know part of what all of this I think. Uh, is intended to do is to sort of bolster the Jewish Christians uh, and to sort of, um, I, I guess, um, point out really the the flaws and the fallacies of the Jewish religious leaders who uh, in that day and time really would have been the powers that be. They were the ones who uh, were running the synagogue and, and for the, for in many cases, these Jewish Christians would have been not only cast out from the synagogues, but maybe even cast out from their families. So they were sort of marginalized. And this was, you know, this is the polemic of the marginalized, you know, and, and um, I think we need to see it as, as such. Explain how a little bit more about how this is the polemic of the marginalized. Do, do we see this in other places? Yeah, we do. In fact, um, in fact, the, 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 even the very language, the things that Jesus criticizes the scribes and the Pharisees for throughout this chapter are found in other places. Josephus, uh, for example, uses some of the same exact um, criticisms for the zealots that were sort of the opposite of his view. And actually in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find some interesting polemics uh, against the Jewish establishment, especially the temple establishment in, in Jerusalem. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the interesting phrases in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they talk about the seekers after smooth things. And we don't really know exactly who they are, but they may actually be the Pharisees, which is an ironic twist. Because we don't think of the Pharisees as the seekers right. after smooth things. We think of the Pharisees as the hard-nosed people. And, but, but that shows how even more radically, almost fundamentalist, the, the Qumran community was about some things. And so it's a matter of perspective, really, I guess. But yes, the, the language in this 
is is fairly conventional and um we really shouldn't you know i think one one of the things we should understand when we're reading this passage is that matthew is not trying to give us a historical account of who the pharisees and the scribes were he's engaged in intra-jewish polemic you know he's he's addressing a, a jewish community jewish christians within the larger jewish um community um who were being really being oppressed and marginalized by the powers that be and he's addressing them and trying to encourage them and part of part of the strategy in those days in that day and time was to basically take your opponents and just vilify them <laughs> okay uh, well I, I think that leads me to some questions uh, one of the things that calvin did and i know we're not quite there yet was really draw out how the this, the pharisees were this, the unique group that he was really focusing on as opposed to like the Sadducees or the Essenes. He said, no, the Pharisees, they're the ones that interpret scripture with, with mysticism. That's what Calvin said. So in his view, Matthew, which he would regard as having the, the truer gospel as he's comparing it to Luke and Mark, um, he <laughs> I, kind of interestingly drew out the Pharisees as being a targeted group. But I'm understanding, I think that you're backing off saying, no, this is just a, talking about the broader, um, the broader relationship between the Yeah, I would, say, I would say the scribes and the Pharisees here are, you know, and, and we, have to look at, we have to look at the context of Jesus' ministry. You know, in the context of Jesus' ministry, one, one, you know, if you look at, I mean, if you look at polemics in general, even today in religious circles, we reserve our harshest words for the people who are the closest to us. <laughs> you know, that's true. You yeah. know, I mean, um, <laughs> uh, it happens in every denominational conflict. You know, the people who leave our denomination, we will vilify them, or or the people who want to push us out of our denomination, we'll vilify them. But people who are like way on the other side of the spectrum will be very compassionate and kind to them and accepting and tolerant <laughs> and all of that. So I think that's part of what you have going on in Jesus' ministry is that one of the reasons why Jesus was, and Jesus did criticize the Pharisees for, for not practicing what they preached, for being hypocritical. And, um, um, but I think one of the reasons why he did that was because the Pharisees were the closest to him ideology, ideologically in the Jewish spectrum of groups uh, in that day and time. So, um, you know, we tend to have the most conflict with the people that we're most similar to. You know, Lutheran groups battle other Lutheran groups. They don't really take much time battling Presbyterians. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. And I'm not trying to pick on Lutherans. It's the same for every, every denomination. Right. Now, it brings up kind of an interesting question. Um, so in this, in this early, these early Christians, and how, to what extent they were worshiping apart from the Pharisees or what, to what point they were interacting with them on a regular basis. I mean, I guess in outside groups, probably you know, the Romans probably would have seen them as much the same community. And yet they are seeing themselves as different communities. Well, I liked, there was, there was a, the, um, I was looking at uh, the commentary by W.D. Davies and Dale Allison, um, which is massive, of course, but one of their comments was that essentially the synagogue was basically across the street, you know, and, and so maybe not literally, but, you know, they were definitely, I mean, we don't know if these people have already been 
pushed out of the synagogue or if they're in the process of being pushed out of the synagogue. We don't know. But, but it seems clear that that's what's going on, that, that either they're in the process of being pushed out of the synagogue by the leaders or that's already happened. The split's already happened. But regardless of whether it's already happened or not, they're still living in communities where, I mean, right. they have to go to the market and they see these people, you know, and they interact with these people. They may have to do business with some of these people. And, and so, and, and maybe they're being shunned by even their former, their family members and, and their former business associates. So it's very, it's a very real part, I think, of Matthew's Jewish Christian community. And so that's why I think we have such, uh, you know, I would, I would not say that Matthew's account here is the truest account because it provides the fullest account the way <laughs> Calvin does. Calvin does. <laughs> right. I would say Matthew's account uh, is a reflection of, of the community that he's addressing and, and a, ref- a reflection of the intensity of the conflict that they were in with the, with the Jewish synagogue. Wonderful. Um, so let me ask another question. Um, if, I guess, what is these folks that would be, have been reading this or, or hearing this, um, what was the message you think they were really supposed to take from it? Well, part of it was, <clears throat> you know, to, to, to sort of disestablish <laughs> the authority of the Jewish leaders who were basically calling these folks heretics and and ca- casting them out and and verbally you know um, castigating them. So part of it was to to sort of um, take the sting out of that polemic that they were receiving. Um, but part of it also was uh, there's some themes that that you find that run throughout the gospel that are reflected in this passage. One of them, of course, is hypocrite, and and I think we should look at this particular passage in light of the whole chapter it's interesting because um, the word hypocrite occurs more times in this chapter than any other place in the new testament that you have the sevenfold woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites and it's it's the most it's the biggest cluster of this word hypocrite in the new testament and so i think and i think that's part of the focus of this passage is, you know, Jesus says initially, he says, um, um, do whatever they teach and teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do for they do not practice what they teach, you know, and, and so uh, that aspect of the fact that they didn't practice what they taught was something you find throughout the Gospels, the the Gospel of Matthew. Um, You also have another uh, aspect here of, of, uh, there is a criticism of the kind of religious, almost egotism, that is characterized by pretension, by showiness, by drawing attention to oneself, by seeking attention versus humble service. And that's something that's also uh, in, in Matthew's Gospel. So this, this language of saying and doing this contrast between saying and doing, and then also this in, this this focus on on humility rather than pretension, you know, that's I think that's kind of the main point here. Uh, and of course, it concludes with, you know, the greatest will be the servant of all. 
and whoever, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. It, it seems to me to be a little bit of then a, a good conclusion from all these parables that we've been looking at. Am I am I right? Yeah, I mean, I, I we're gonna we're gonna see some more of this, I think, later on with with the parables that come in chapter twenty five. But yes, I mean, this 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 chapter really, I think, in Matthew's gospel serves as sort of the 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 conclusion of this whole section where you have hints and clues about the tension between. Uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, and hence includes between about the tension between Matthew's Jewish Christian community and the synagogue, and and in fact so much so that after this chapter, the next time you see the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders, they're plotting Jesus' death, and so um, I, I think we're meant to see this as sort of the final uh, break. Yeah, sounds good. So, uh, um, I think another. You know, as I'm thinking about, um, sometimes there's a tendency to view Christianity as, as not following the law. To me, this seems to be, though, still upholding the law, but just that the law mm-hmm. has been misunderstood. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because um, in, um, in verse 3, Matthew has Jesus say, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, which is sort of it's kind of surprising to hear Jesus say that because every other time Jesus talks about what they teach he's critical of it and so here he's saying do whatever they teach you and follow it and that seems strange because it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the gospel of Matthew or the rest of what we know about Jesus and I think probably what's going on here is it's just another way to highlight the contrast between doing and saying you know, it's, it's another way to highlight the fact that, you know, you might practice what they preach, but they don't practice what they preach. And so um, I, I don't know that we need to make a whole lot out of it. I think the point more is about the contrast between the saying and doing. They t- talked a good game, but, they, but their, their lives didn't really show it. They made a, made a big show and made a big pretense. They, 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 they talked a good game about being faithful to God and God's ways, but when it came to their actual, the way they lived their lives, um, they were not faithful to God and God's ways. Yeah. Sounds fair. Now, one thing in here, too, is, is this whole thing about the titles of honor, you know. Oh, um, yes, yes. <laughs> um, no queen. I, I'm looking for the queen reference. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, you're not to be called rabbi. You're not to, ha- you're not to be called teacher. No, let, no one, let no one call you father. Um, nor are you to be called instructors or guides is the word, you know. And it's, it's ironic because, boy, if there's anything that Jesus said <laughs> that we haven't paid hardly any attention to, it's that. And I, you know, I, again, I don't know that a literal, you know, we shouldn't have honorific titles at all. I, I mean, you know, if people earn a position, if they've earned a degree, say, for example, or if they've earned um, uh, a position of service, I mean, you could say we shouldn't be called pastor. We should just be called brother and sister or, or whatever, you know. And um, 
you can go overboard with this is what I'm trying to say, I think. So I, um, but it's, it's interesting that um, it's ironic that, um, you know, among the texts, among the things that Jesus says, this is probably one of the most ignored. <laughs> it, well, you know, the reformers deal with that and it may have come to us in part from mm-hmm. the reformers, which we can talk about a little bit later, but um, yeah. they were not in favor of getting rid of those titles, but only those titles that were taken um, with with some type of right. haughtiness that might right. come with it. Exactly, um, and I think that's the point. I think mm-hmm. the point here is the pretension, is, is the showingness, is is the love of titles, the love of honorific uh, titles, just for the sake of being honored. Yeah, because that yeah. you know that's an ego. Based right, thing. Right. That's not. That's not uh, coming out of humble service. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, interesting point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and and as we, as we talk about that, I think one of the one of the interesting points we need to think about too is, you know, not only should we not view this as a historical account of who the Pharisees really were. I don't think really that the main application for this passage is to say, yeah, see those those self-righteous people out there, they're so hypocritical. The point is that we're to apply it to ourselves uh, because, I mean, uh, any, any cursory survey of church history would show that uh, the story of the church is full of the, the exact same abuses that Jesus addresses. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it's not like we've been any different or we've done it any better, you know? So I think the, 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 I think the main point of application here is on us. Uh, we should be, um, um, we need to think about how do our words and our deeds match up? Are we the same kind of people in private that we make ourselves out to be in public? Uh, how are we giving in to our ego desires for strokes and honor and, uh, and recognition? And, or how are we serving uh, for the sake of serving without reference to, you know, whether people honor us or not? I, and I think that's what we're going to hear really from uh, John Calvin and um, Absolutely, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. We're back, and uh, we're still discussing Matthew 23 and, and how we're going to shift gears now to how the Reformers looked at this chapter. And, and so I'm just going to start by asking Christy, how did the Reformers use this chapter with reference to the Jewish people of their day? And this is um, an interesting question, and I think it's one that we, we want to jump into with, well, gosh, this is an example of race relationships back then, but I think you have to still remember that there are very few Jews living in, um, um, and particularly in Geneva, where Calvin is, um, uh, David Steinmetz, the great Calvin scholar, believes he didn't actually know anybody Jewish mm. ever. Um, Luther, in his whole lifetime. In his whole lifetime. Wow. Uh, Luther may have had a few interactions, but you're talking about maybe one Jewish person um, that they've met. And so what they know is just by hearsay, largely. Mm. Um, and so I, I think they probably would have assumed that Jewish people were 
the followers of the law than following and, and were the hypocrites. Um, probably um, would have said so in the various anti-Jewish tracts that you read, but not from personal experience. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting question, but but probably one uh, no different than um, here we are in the middle of Nebraska and asking someone who is in Broken Bow, Nebraska to give a lot of background on race relationships if they've never been outside of there when they don't maybe not have met very many people. Right, right. Anybody, anybody of, of color. Of color, right, right, right exactly. Right. So I guess, uh, you know, if we're talking about polemics, then the primary focus of their polemics would have been the Catholic yes. Church. And so how did they, did they use this passage in relation to the Catholic Church? Yes, at times. What I thought was interesting in reading their commentaries is not always. Um, so there would be a chapter just kind of examining kind of our, our overall human condition with our, our kind of preconditioned um, desire to be... Um, be in positions of ele- elevated positions and recognition that way and then versus our um our desire to 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 not be humble um but then they would shift gears and they say and then but this is obviously an example of what the roman catholics are ah, doing. i see so so they would they would they would lay all the ego and all the pretension and all of the desire to be exalted at the feet of the catholic well, yes, community. yes. I mean, that, they would be an example of that, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't say that it was it was not something that could happen to them as well, right? Oh, yeah. So they wouldn't. They they said this is part of the human condition that we are all oh, kind of predisposed see. to be oh. to to want those those recognitions and to be elevated above. So they recognize that as a human sin mm-hmm. of, of everybody. But then they're saying, and here's this very specific example, the Roman Catholic Church, <laughs> which is by their their priests, by the Pope, um, by the elevated status of those folks over the common Christian. I find it interesting that they're still pointing out them as the prime examples of this of this universal human tendency to want to exalt oneself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's their, that's their headspace, mm-hmm. you know, and especially, so this, um, this then leads into this whole idea of um, works, works, righteousness. Therefore I'm elevated because I have uh, shown I that I'm yeah. elevated um, versus the, the common person. Um, then it gets them into this next space of, well, how am I saved? Those people claim that they're they're elevated right. because they're saved and they're showing that point because they've done all these things versus the person that has faith. And so it turns really into um, part of that larger discussion of, of freedom of a Christian, which comes through Luther's famous tract in 1520, one of those three that, that spun... Um, that spun in that year. So it's 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 more focused toward the the justification by faith as opposed to works uh, yes. idea. Yes, yes, yeah. and so that you know the the true Christian is the one that is not exalted by by works done, but rather by the faith in God and that humility that's within. And so um, it gets spun into that argument. That's interesting because to you know as I mentioned earlier, I think. One of the major themes in Matthew's gospel is the contrast between saying and doing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and uh, so I wonder to what extent did the reformer, were the reformers aware of that tension in their own lives? Uh, 
Definitely. I mean, because they saw themselves as sinners. I mean, I think that's really interesting when you read Calvin and you read Luther and you read Melanchthon, they saw themselves as these, as these sinners. Um, and so they were very, very much aware um, of their own desires to be elevated and mm. yet that that was a sinful thing to do. I want to read this from um, Calvin's commentaries because I just thought this was awesome. Um, so Calvin writes... Um, he, Jesus, therefore declares that the highest honor in the church is not government, but service. So government taking in terms of ranking. Right. A, a rank the hierarchy position, of a hierarchy, leadership. Yeah, yeah but right. service. And so it's not what you, um, uh, it's not, um, and, and service, uh, not, not what you claim to be, but actually what you are doing. Oh, really? Yes, yeah. what you are doing in, in, in the kingdom, how you are. Mm being a Christian servant to others. So, so that, yeah, put that in the context of the servant, the, the Christian servant, yeah. So I guess I guess maybe this again would fall into the distinction between you're justified by your faith, but then the saying and doing theme would probably fall more into sanctification and how you live out your Christian faith. Right. So you are, um, yes, you are saved by your faith, but in that faith, you are bound to be the servant of all. So it's that, that that's the whole piece of the this freedom of a christian is this dichotomy between between doing because of your faith not doing because that brings you to salvation uh, yeah, so yeah. um the 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 one who is the um free freest in faith is the one who is servant to all so that everyone is a priest but in being a priest they're a servant in that role mm -hmm. um it's interesting because I think of I think of Luther's comment of James as being a right strawy epistle, uh, because you know uh, of there's so much in there about works and and what you do, but from my perspective, from a New Testament perspective, James is probably one of the cl closest uh, books in the in the latter part of the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. There's a lot of connection oh, between James and Matthew and so he has this saying and doing thing going on as well so maybe maybe uh, maybe Luther could have found some something to appreciate in James after all I, don't I know. think he wanted to get rid of James but yeah well I know he did I, my family Bible is a Luther Bible from the 1850s and it has you know it has the four books that he didn't like at the end of the oh, New Testament hilarious. I yeah. did not realize that that's oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah 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 oh, and I think Luther gets, we've talked about that before, that Luther gets into trouble as, you know, being this kind of antinomian and he doesn't, um, you don't have to do anything. You're just saved because you believe. And that's not it at all. He believed that if you are truly saved, you're going to respond in service. Um, and that came through here in, in what capital. I guess that's well. another example of where you have to go back to Luther himself and not necessarily look at some of Luther's followers or look at look at the isms that came out of Luther's teachings because oftentimes those those uh, didn't really fairly represent um, the original uh, ideas of Luther say or Calvin or, or whoever we might be talking and about. And that's a real problem that we fall into as we are learning little bits and pieces of the history that we tend to want to 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 make them we do that with the Bible as well right and that's of course what we are partly doing is trying to have people say, hey, let's look back into these scriptures again. Um, let's look at an expert in, in the Greek who can who could say, hey, let's let's look at what this Greek meant at this time so we can we can get to maybe a, a, a clear understanding or at least a new understanding of the scripture. So and the same yeah. thing with these reformers who 
many times um, we have adopted their ideas and we have twisted them out of out of what they were. Um, mm. So um, I guess I, it sounds like the reformers are pretty much on the same page with Jesus on this. I think so. Yeah. I think this is a place where the reformers kind of get it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, we don't want to. We don't want to bash them all the time. No, no, we don't, because they actually make a huge contribution into how we understand our our reformed faith today. Sure. And so when we ignore them, um, which we have huge swaths of the Christian church that do, we we miss out on on really the fullness of the Christian tradition and. Um, and what it means to be a Christian, I think. And so I, their, their comments are important. Well, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like Protestants ignoring Catholic teachings in the Middle Ages. Oh, gosh, you yes. Know, or or, <laughs> or it, today in the PCUSA, you know, there might not be much of an interest among people in actually reading Calvin because you read the Institutes and Calvin comes off as being a bit, a bit black and white, you know, but a bit, a bit all or nothing, you know, in some of his views. I know he's got some nuanced things there. Mm-hmm. But then you read him in the commentaries and some of his other writings, and he gets very nuanced um, in, in those um, uh, documents. And, you know, it, it's you, you can't just read the Institutes to understand Calvin. I agree. I agree. And I love the Institutes. But I see a Calvin there who is the great theologian, and he's trying to make all the pieces fit together. And that gets... That gets him into trouble, frankly. And if you've ever worked with theology and trying to make it all work in some big um, macro scale, there are things that don't seem to gel. It's 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 a lot like working with, um, you know, um, ideas about the universe, trying to make it all fit together. And and um, grand unification theory. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's pieces that don't fit, and so then you find yourself at the end going. Eh. And I, that's what I read when I read the Institutes. I just see these, oh, yeah. he's, he's thinking this way, how this is going to fit. And then he's realizing, oh, but now that doesn't fit somewhere else. So it's brilliant, but it also gets us into trouble because mm-hmm. Calvin is a brilliant thinker. Well, and I think it's important to note that the he wrote the Institutes fairly early on in his career, did he not? Well, he started them. <laughs> yes, he started them. I and know then, they went through different editions. Yeah, and then he had all these different editions. Again, <clears throat> theologian getting the pieces mm-hmm. all to fit right? Um, so it all makes sense. But, but, you know, when it comes to writing a commentary on the, on the whole Bible, you know, there's just so much. Exactly. I mean, especially in, in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, you, you, there are passages, you just can't, you can't reconcile them with Christian, a Christian systematic theology. It just doesn't work. It doesn't, but we're going to keep trying, aren't we? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and, and, you know, I, this is why I, I, I said, I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's valuable to recognize that, that Calvin in the commentaries speaks a little differently than he does in, I agree. in the Institutes. Um, I agree. And there's some, there's some things to be gleaned there. Yeah, I agree. So, so I guess are we gonna are we gonna start launch a, a read through Calvin's commentaries uh, uh, mo- movement? Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm gonna stick to my Logos Bible software that pulls up <laughs> pulls up the references I need instantly. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I think another piece, and this is maybe where we 
where we end the discussion is to remind you that this, uh, we, we look at Luther and we look at Calvin and we look at these, what we consider the major reformers, but there's so many more out there that are in the discussion. And some of them, frankly, are more important in that bigger discussion, but we aren't reading them because they have fallen to the wayside. Maybe their things aren't translated. Um, Johannes Eklampadius is a huge I was thinking of him, yeah. And yet, eh, we don't read him. Most of us know of Martin Bootser, but, well, we we don't read him quite as much either. And so I think knowing that that is a whole movement and there's a lot of other voices that are really important is also um, also something that we should keep our ears open for. And I'll try to introduce more of those voices as we are moving forward in this. That sounds great. Thanks, yeah. Christy. You're welcome. So we're back, and we're going to talk about how this passage applies to us today. And I was, as I was talking about earlier, um, you know, all the things that Jesus criticizes the scribes and the Pharisees for, we can find in the story of the church. In fact, there was a comment by W.D. Davies and Dale Allison um, um, they made in their commentary uh, over 20 years ago that still applies today. They say, all the vices here attributed to the scribes and Pharisees have attached themselves to Christians and in abundance. <laughs> I like that. I thought that was a pretty pithy way to put it. Um, you know, and, and I guess what I'm looking, what I'm trying to get at is, is how do we as a church, how do we as contemporary Christians really see ourselves in the light of the challenge of this text. I think it's it's I think if we do have an awareness that this chapter should apply to Christians, it's still typically the hypocrisy of others or the them that we point out, kind of like the reformers did. And so I wonder what it will take for the church, for we us in the church to really see ourselves in the light of this challenge. I think it's a really hard challenge, and I think it's something that we're all very much part of. And, of course, the reformers sort of said that's part of the, our sin, right, is mm -hmm. that we, we tend to p point out what we see in others as wrong and not be able to see that in ourselves. And so taking that true view of humility is, is something amazing. And we've all seen uh, it. Uh, I always reflect back on a, a class I had in a seminary, and there was, there was this uh, professor, he talked about, you know, a lot of us, talk the talk but do we really get it and he said mm -hmm. then you'll look back and back in the back row of your church is the usually a little old lady knitting and she has she has this understanding that and a humility and you know she gets it and i think we get so caught up with how do we get new members and how do we sell our denomination over somebody else and so we start to say because we're right and they're wrong and then we become very righteous about our truth and then we forget to even look inside and say whoa stop wait what have we just done we've mm -hmm. become the exact situation that we were complaining about in the first place sure, and so sure. that is i think i think that just reflects our humanity a little bit sure um but awareness is part of the battle well and i i will say you know, I think about about when I was much younger and some of the thoughts I had and some of the theology I had back then, and I, I'm embarrassed at some of the things that I thought back then. Um, I would say that experientially, it has taken um, 
critical events in my life that have broken me, and more than once, (laughs) you know, really broken me, to counteract that tendency toward egotism and toward self-exaltation and toward pretension. And that, that is just, it is a natural part of being human. You know, we naturally want to think highly of ourselves. And um, I, I guess, you know, maybe the reason why the little old lady in the back who's knitting really gets it is because she's really been she's through life. It. She's seen it all. And I agree. I think that's part of, that's, that's a huge part of it is, is that experience that, that experiences that have that give you life that, that, that reflect on the humility that takes the, the person that you didn't expect to, because you had already blocked them off as the one who, you know, came to your aid when you were ill and it mm. opens your eyes in a new way. I mean, so many experiences, I think, help with that and and being aware of it and mm-hmm. being and being able to self-reflect on it and that's that's huge yeah um but we have to open ourselves up to up to that that self-analysis and sure. not everybody um is willing to do that that's right? true it's scary <laughs> it's scary and it's hard yeah and, and that sort of leads me to another idea here and that is you know it seems that in matthew's gospel Part of the point of Matthew chapter 23 is to emphasize the hardness of heart on the part of the Jewish religious leaders. And in fact, as I said, I mean, the next time we see them in Matthew's gospel, they are plotting Jesus' death. Right. Right. And so this is meant to be an indication that they they have departed from God's ways. And, you know, I think hardness of heart comes in all different guises. Uh, you know, I think we tend to think of the people who are hard of heart or the people who either refuse to come to faith or refuse to see things our way. But that awareness, you know, we can harden our hearts to the vulnerability that we have to embrace in order to have that awareness and in order to, to come to that humility. And and so, I mean, I even, I even think, you know, you, there are some people who are crusading for a cause out of their own pain and anger, and I certainly understand that. Um, and I don't want to say anything negative about their pain and anger. But at the same time, if your motivation is pain and anger, I think it's going to come through in the way you relate to people and in the way you attempt to accomplish this goal. Whatever the goal may be, whether I'm sure right. I'm, you know there are worthy goals right. that we can we can accomplish. But if it's if our motivation is pain and anger, um, I wonder if that's not another kind of hardness of heart, in that we're not being willing to take a look at our own selves. We're not being willing to to have that self awareness that leads to a true humility. I think you, I think you've nailed it. I think that's the huge question, and I think a lot of folks are attracted to what they see or the causes championed by the church because of that pain and anger, that anger. But when you are acting out of anger, you're never ever going to be reconciled. It's only when you literally say, you know, drop down on my knees and God, I I need your presence in my life. I mean, that's when it changes because that's when you realize you're, you're fully humble. You're fully at the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're responding out of that that love of forgiveness. Um, well, and it's something that I've often thought, and I don't remember where I picked this up. I'm sure it was from somebody else. Um, 
But for many years, I've thought, you know, if I am able to accomplish anything of lasting value for the sake of God's realm, it will be through God's Spirit working through me. Exactly. And the only way that that can happen is if I am able to get out of the way and and set my ego aside. Exactly. And, you know, I was thinking about this as we're talking about this in terms of our preaching. You know, sometimes we get up there and we're we're the performers on stage or are we? And it's a reminder to, I think, you know, are we beginning our, our, our sermons with prayer, asking for God's divide, guidance? Are we, are we starting with prayer when we write the darn things, you know, or are we thinking about our egos first? And um, how we, how, how, is, how are the people going to see me? How am I going to look to them? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think when you steep it in prayer, um, at least you're on the process of, of reminding yourself, hey, this is for the glory of God. And um, I, I, I think that's how we survive in this, <laughs> in this profession, which if you are in this profession because you want to be exalted, I think you're never, I mean, it's always going to feel, uh, I, I don't think it's ever going to feel like it's enough. I always think you're going to be, you're, 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 you're comparing it to human our human traits instead of right. living in God's presence and living in God's peace. Well, and anytime we, we take a comparative approach to ourselves, we're, we're off the boat, you know, we've missed it, you know, <laughs> exactly. and, and we're, we're in trouble. We're unfortunately. in trouble. Yeah. We're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think uh, you've heard me preach and, and, you know, I, I tend to have a strong delivery. I tend to come across in a very authoritative way. And I've actually had fellow pastor, in the previous context, um, apparently uh, they came to me later on and, 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 and sort of, I think, confessed this to me. They thought that I was arrogant and that I was showing off. And, <laughs> you know, f- that probably would have been true of me in my <laughs> 20s, but that's been a long time ago. You know, as a 59-year-old, that was a long time ago. And, and one of the things that I've had to do to, to actually make it all these years as a preacher is to just literally, uh, mentally remind myself, it's not about me, it's about the message. It's about, you know, you know try to convey the message. And maybe that's where I come across so strongly. I don't know, because I'm conveying the message and it's not about me. <laughs> But, um, you know, even, even, in that, even, in, even coming out of that framework of it's not about me and it's not about how people think of me, it's about the message. I've had, I've had it misconstrued as, as pride and showing off. And, and so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough – I think anytime we try to judge someone else's motivations, we, we get into – Then we're back right back into our problem when we're judging yeah. someone else's motivations. Yeah. Right. You've got to start with that that humble prayer. And we know. all do that. I mean, I've done it myself. I've judged other people's motivations as well. Oh, yeah. haven't we we all have. Yeah. We all have. And um I think that takes us right back into our own hardness of heart. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's, a, it, yeah. it's a cycle that our yeah. reformers are very aware of. Our, well, and and you know, humility is a work that that progresses all of our lives and we're continually learning to be humble and and to be servants uh, in the way that jesus was was uh teaching us to be right right yeah yeah now you know one of the things that i thought about when thinking about this passage in the application is is um 
oppressive religious figures and repressive oppressive religion. You know, this is one of the things that Jesus criticizes the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you, you know, you tie up heavy burdens and you don't even lift a figure to help people carry them. And when I think about religious oppression in our context, I think of Christian celebrities who, frankly, in my opinion, and, and this may be my judgment here. I may be judging them. I don't know. But it seems from outward appearances anyway that they've enriched themselves at the expense of those who can least afford it. And um, I'll have to confess, I've always had a hard time um, being charitable <laughs> toward those, those kinds of people in, in religious circles. And, and yet, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that even in this almost caustic criticism of the Jewish religious leaders. The end result, the end of this chapter, is Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Jesus' lament, and which expresses his compassion for the very people who are plotting his death yeah. and who are going to execute him. And so, to me, that's a challenge as well, to remember that... Um, you know, to recognize, we, maybe we can recognize oppression for what it is, you know, religious oppression or, or racial oppression or whatever the oppression may be, but can we address it with compassion? Can we speak the truth in love? We, 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 mm-hmm. we, I hear a lot about speaking truth to power, but can we speak the truth in love? And uh, I wonder how we do that. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. And I think being a woman in ministry, we get a lot of this because there is so much, um, there's so much judgment towards women in ministry by some, some of those people. And it's really hard to be in that space, right? And your gut feeling is to lash out and it hurts. And how do you function in that space? I mean, that to me, that's maybe least afford it, but... You know, when we keep having, it's a way to oppress women as a whole when sure. we, we don't allow them to be in these positions. So how do you function in that space and how do you live in that space? It's been a huge question mark in my mind as a, as, as, as a woman going into this and having people tell me I have no business being a pastor because mm. I'm female. And, um, and so, and it hurts. And so again, it's kind of what we talked about before is, do you come out of it out of your pain um, and try to fix it that way? Or... I think Calvin had it right. Do you do you do it by your service? You know, mm. you know, you're Christians by by our love. You right. know, you're Christians by our love, and I think I think that's really our mission is is just that it, it's slower and it's a process, and we may never see it in our lifetime, but just that constant gentle love, an example. I think that's our best. Our, well, the thought uh, that the, the thought that comes to mind is you know on. Uh, um, um, I believe it's um, Luke's gospel uh, records that one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Boy, yeah, that can be a hard thing to pray. It, it is a hard thing to pray, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I will say my heart breaks, you know, and we've gotten, as we've gotten to know each other, I, I've heard, I've known your story and my heart breaks that there are people out there who would say that to you because I think you're eminently qualified and, um, oh my goodness, definitely called and gifted for ministry. And it just, it breaks my heart that people who are like you, who are so called and gifted for ministry get told that they, they don't have any business being 
in ministry because of their gender. Well, mm-hmm. that's uh, that just breaks my heart. Uh, it's yeah, and it's similar in other ways. You mm-hmm. know, whatever you're, you're not worthy of this, 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 and it. You know, my big thing. I think I've mentioned before. My big theological identity right now is is trying to think about how we help people live into their wholeness mm-hmm. and. These are types of things that pull away our wholeness, but but Christ gives us wholeness, and yes. God does. Yes. And so when we can live into that freedom, yes. freedom of a Christian, we are also living into our wholeness. Yes, um, and then and the freedom then is the freedom to serve. The, and freedom to serve. And, and that service may take the form of speaking the truth in love to power, and, and it may take the form of, of also um, recognizing how far, how far we fall short ourselves, but um, that humble service, I, I think as long as we can, if we can serve with humility, we're going to make mistakes in ministry. We're going we're gonna to say things and do things <laughs> that we're going to regret years later. I mean, we all do that, you know. But um, I think if, if, our, if, our, if our hearts are in the right place, if we're, if we're doing it in love, you know, truly, in a, in a genuine sense of, of, you know, I feel compelled by the love of Christ to go, to go here. Um, then, you know, I don't think we'll, we'll stray too far afield, I hope. I, I hope, I hope, that, yeah. right? That's, that's why we have the Bible and the tools to help us. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and our liturgies and, and all the things that can help us um, stay centered. Yeah, well, thanks for a great discussion Thank today, you. Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Mandy Peterson for our graphic design. And Sarah Renner for her beautiful music. If you heard something that was helpful to you in your ministry, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you listen in. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.